Well, our text this morning is Matthew chapter 7. Math, no, I'm sorry, Matthew 15 is the one I have there. Yes, because we're using both. We're using Mark and Matthew, but we're reading Matthew 15. We're going to read 21 through 28. And this is a passage that has been one of my favorites since I'm a child. I've, even before I read the Bible, I knew about this passage and I loved it. And over the years, it has been one of my favorite passages in Scripture. The encounter of Jesus with this Syrophoenician woman. And the way Matthew tells of it is this way. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, great is your faith. You have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed in that moment. And that is the reading of God's word. Let us pray once again. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather around your word. Thank you for allowing us to sing praises to your name. Thank you for those who help us and serve us in their, in, with their talents in, in helping us sing praises to you. Father, we pray now that you help us as we have read the scriptures and we will try to expound them that as it was already prayed that Jesus may be honored, that you may be glorified. And if anybody doesn't know you, that they may come to know this Christ, this treasure, this pearl of great price, our Savior and our great God. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We human beings are, are, are very sectarian. We are gregarious by nature. That's the way God made us. We, our friends are more or less similar to us in age or in likes or culture, um, inclinations. We, we tend to gather in little groups. And in the political and religious world, it is the same. We, we tend to be sectarian. As Jeff Orlowski, that documentary that is scary to watch, Social Dilemma points out, the artificial intelligence of, of these great media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc., they, they direct people based on their likes, their tastes, their preferences, political, religious, whatever they are, because all they are doing is targeting niches of people, groups of people, to sell products. So they put them in clusters in social media so they can send the right products for the right people. That's the whole deal of it. It's not any conspiracy theory. It's not the government doing things behind us. It is marketing. Now, the problem with that, 
is that we are put into these clusters. And if you notice in Facebook, there's 20, 25 people that you always see the stuff they publish, right? And vice versa. And we tend to think that everybody thinks like us. If you're a Christian, you're a conservative, you're a Republican. And if you're not, you're an apostate or you're some kind of crazy. Because you cannot be anything else but Republican or vice versa. If you're a Christian and you're socially conscious and you are concerned about life and about the poor, you have to be a Democrat. Because if you're a Republican, you're just this bigoted, racist, crazy person that cannot even be a Christian. And it happens in all spheres. We tend to be cultic and sectarian. And that brings us into an echo chamber. Everybody talks like us, thinks like us, speaks like us, dresses like us, and all of a sudden we're just in this herd that everybody looks the same. What's the challenge with that? That we start to think that we are the elect ones, the select ones, the perfect ones, the special ones. It happened in the days of Jesus. Because the world has been the world since Adam and Eve. There's nothing new under the sun. So there comes this man to this little piece of land, irrelevant in world history, an obscure province in the Roman Empire, inhabited by people who thought, we are the apple of God's eye. And in a sense they were, because Israel was called to be that. And here comes this rabbi, this teacher, saying, wait a second, no, God has a plan. Is that Walter Kaiser's book, The Plan? And the plan is that he wants to redeem all of Adam's children, not only those who are in Israel. And here's Jesus living in Capernaum, northwest in Israel, if you have your map there. And Mark says... Jesus left the confrontation he had had with the Pharisees over dietary laws and the washing of hands and condemning them because of their tradition and because of their sectarian spirit. And from there, he retreats and goes into Gentile land. If, if you've ever been to Israel, and I know many of you have been, when you're traveling in that road that leads to Jerusalem, you can even see Syria on the, on the left-hand side. You see the houses and the buildings and the villages because it's right there. If you go to the Dead Sea, you can see the barracks of what used to be part of the Syrian army, but Israel conquered that land in the 67 war. So you know they were very packed together. So it was not hard for Jesus to walk from Capernaum into the land of the Gentiles, the land of the Phoenicians. And there he encounters a woman as he goes into a Gentile house. He and 12 guys went into the house of someone in Cyrus or in Phoenicia. Jesus had friends there. We were not given the details. But somebody received received him into his house as well as his disciples. And there takes place this account of the woman who was a Gentile from that area. And my sermon today is very simple. From the passage we read, a great need, a great hindrances, and a strange answer that illustrates the gospel. This passage is fascinating to me because of the need, because of the strange person who's asking for help, All of the impediments that she had to overcome to keep insisting. And then this weird reply. 
she gets from Jesus, but that didn't stop her. She kept going and she got what she wanted. She didn't take no for an answer. I love that kind of people. I am not that way. I'm, 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 I, don't, I don't push. You try to go two, three times. The third time doesn't go, strike three. Next batter. That, that's the way I operate. But I love those as I'm going to take 10 strikes if needs be. But I'm going to hit that ball. Well, this woman was that kind. And what was her great need? Well, Mark puts this little spin to the account. If you go to the account in Mark, he says that Jesus went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he went into a Gentile house. And he didn't want to be bothered. With certain frequency, after intense times of ministry, Jesus would take, would take his disciples and retreat and give them a break. It was not work, 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 ministry, ministry all the time. He, he took them for furlough occasionally. And this time he says, let's go, let's go outside of the country. Let's go to the Phoenician land. Have a friend there. We'll stay in their house and let's take a break. And he didn't want to be discovered. He wanted to remain hiding. But God can't hide. That's a reality. It's not possible for God to hide. Every corner of this globe seeks after him. His glory, his testimony, his footprint is everywhere in the planet. So no, Jesus could not hide. In him we move and are and exist, says Paul. And there's Jesus trying to take a break. And a woman knocks on the door and says, I know who you are, I need help. Oh boy. In Mark's account, he, he says something that I find it interesting. Matthew says that her, her daughter was demon-possessed. But the second time Mark mentions the daughter, he says that the woman said, my little daughter is demon-possessed. Now, if the daughter was little because she was a young girl, or maybe she was a, an older daughter, but parents always see their children as little. I mean, we're going to be grandparents, and, and, and I can, whenever I think of my children... I see one like four years old and the other one five to six. That, that's, that's parents. We, we always see our children as kids. And one of the challenges we have is that we cannot treat them as kids anymore, even though in our minds they are. But anyways, here's a mother who has the pain for an ill daughter. Demon-possessed, was that a mental illness that was called in those days demon possession? Was that a true demon possession? I don't know. The text says, my daughter is demon-possessed. Take it as you want. I'm not going to argue the point. But the woman had this great grief over a little daughter. I can relate to that. I can relate to the grief of having a child with a condition that isn't curable, or that is serious, or that is in the hospital, whatever it is. But this woman's need was such that she, in a sense, thwarted Jesus' plans. Jesus' plan was to stay away in the hiding for a while, resting with his disciples. And this woman came to mess it up. 
Now, we know that it is not theologically correct to say that she thwarted Jesus' plans, because God's plans can never be thwarted by anybody. But this is what the passage seems to at least present in the eyes of the reader. Of course, God's plan was this woman's affliction. Of course, God's plan was that Jesus would go into a Gentile land, into the house of a Phoenician, and stay there and have this woman encounter him. And we know that because Romans 8.28 says that. God ordains all things, even the bad things, to those who love him for their good. 1 Peter 1.13 says that trials are appointed for us with the purpose of harnessing and improving and refining our faith. And Paul says, and, and James says, I'm sorry, be joyful when you, are, when you encounter diverse trials. God sends them with the purpose of refining you. So we know she didn't thwart Jesus' plans, but in a sense she did. And then secondly, we find the great hindrances, the great impediments, this woman's faith encountered. First of all, she was a woman. We take that for granted. I'll say something that will make cause some of you to feel uncomfortable. Sorry. But it is true that women have been exploited. I have this inclination not to defend feminism, but at least to stand against what some of the feminists oppose. And it is the exploitation exploitation that women have been the victims of. In fact, it was told as part of the curse by God to Eve in the garden. Eve, you will want to lord it over your husband, but guess what? Your husband will lord it over you. Men will lord it over you because of what you have done. And it is a disgrace. I have daughters. I don't want my daughters to be exploited. I don't want my daughters to make less than a man for the similar type of job. I don't want my daughters to be uh, isolated to either be teachers or nurses. Anything else. They cannot be doctors. They cannot be an astronaut. They cannot be anything else. No, that's wrong. Now, if this is today, imagine 2,000 years ago, imagine it in the Middle East. This was a woman to make it worse, she was a foreigner. In Miami, we take something for granted. I have this view here, right? And it is a palette of colors and races. But you know that when you go out of the state, heading north, and you walk into that McDonald's, you know that you're different. <laughs> This woman was a foreigner in the land of Greeks because she was, she was from Phoenicia, but she was residing in a Middle Eastern country. So her situation, I could not even think of. Even today, women in the Middle East, something that, by the way, liberals do not seem to point out, but women in the Middle East are horribly treated today. I was once in a taxi cab in Morocco, 
And I see this lady putting out a burqa quickly and putting it on. And I ask the guy, what's happening? He says, oh, she saw a police officer. And if she doesn't put it on, she gets a fine. Today, in the 21st century, horribly mistreated, put it back 2,000 years. Now, somebody has written, and, and, and I, I will read it to you. I think it's in your notes. Yes, it is there. Great. In late Judaism, women were forbidden to learn to read and write. At home, they could not pronounce the blessing after the meal. Not because they were Reformed Baptists, but because they could not, by the way. A woman could not serve as a witness before the courts, save for exceptional cases. Women could not go to the court for protection. They were not allowed to sit at the table with guests. They were not allowed to greet people on the streets. So I'm, you're just walking and, and there's Veronica and I see Veronica at Dateland. Hey Veronica! Veronica has to keep going. She cannot greet me. Because that was the rule. Women were suspected of practicing magic. Do you notice, right, that the lady with the hood and the, and the broom is not a guy, it's a lady always, right? Even in Disney movies. Women were suspected of practicing magic. A lot of women, a lot of magic, says Rabbi Hillel. And for Josephus, the woman is inferior in everything to the man. This is the context of the parable. We read it fast. But this is what's happening to that woman in that Gentile house when she met Jesus. Rabbi Judah ben Eli says, Three praises must be done daily. I praise you for not making me a pagan. I praise you for not making me uneducated. And I bless you for not making me a woman. That was a rabbi who taught that. Thank you, Lord, I'm a guy. Now, some of us do thank God that we are guys. If I had to have babies, the mankind population would have disappeared long ago. So, very happy with my gender. I don't have that problem. But it's another story to feel proud and thanking God that you're not a woman. That is the context of this woman approaching Jesus. And by the way, Consider how many times in the Gospels Jesus honored women. In Scripture, there is a reverse to the culture. We just take it for granted. Some people take Scripture as, the, as this old book that is so anachronic, that is so chauvinist. Exactly the opposite. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Completely countercultural. This is the context of what's happening here. But then, I find this hindrance even worse. Matthew 15, 22 puts it this way. She cried out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. But he, that is Jesus, did not answer her a word. Jesus' indifference. I mean, how do we, how do we take when, when we are treated like if we are nothing? Even at work. There's this big shot visiting and you're trying to greet the person and he just looks at you with disdain. You write an email to a person and he's a big shot and he doesn't answer you because he's a big shot. 
I work with, with people like that, by the way. And, and it is so disgusting. It is like, who do you think you are? But it's okay. No big deal. Matthew emphasizes that this woman's plea is ignored by Jesus. I mean, it's at the point that Jesus says, Lord, have mercy on me. He's in the house, wherever he was. He ignores her. In the account of the Gospels, when you put them together, Jesus leaves the house and starts walking, leaving the place. And the woman starts following them, shouting. Been to those places that there are beggars, and they start saying, hey, help me, give me something. And you just kind of ignore, and the guy keeps walking behind you. Hey, man, give me something. And you just ignore, and you, sometimes you stop, and says, what do you need? Give me something. Here, here's five bucks, two bucks, whatever. Just to get rid of the person. That's exactly the scene. The woman starts shouting after Jesus. And in an annoying way, and she doesn't get any answer. Not even the, God bless you, I, I don't have any money now. Not even that. No answer whatsoever. God's indifference. But she kept insisting. Now the disciples intervene. But the disciples' intervention seems to be another hindrance. Because commentators are divided. When you go to the experts and to the commentators, they say, well, the disciples wanted to intervene for the woman. Maybe. Or they just wanted to get rid of her. It reads to me that the disciples wanted to get rid of her. It's like they are walking. I mean, 13 guys walking. And there's this woman shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, son of David. It, it's annoying. And you're walking and you just want to get away from it. And they still keep insisting. And finally they said, Lord, please, get rid of her. Enough. Made me think, by the way, how many times we, the people of God, are an impediment to the faith of many. How many times people we know, relatives, friends, co-workers, do not come to church, do not want anything to do with God, thanks to us. Because many times we are a hindrance to people's faith. The other day I was thinking... The person who preached the gospel to me the first time is not in the faith. The person who took me to church the first time is not in the faith. The preacher I heard in an evangelistic sermon and who moved me to give my life to the Lord is not in the faith. The one who baptized me is not in the faith. The one who mentored me and gave me books and even encouraged me to go into the ministry is not in the faith. My friends with whom I would go out preaching through towns and cities, many of them are not in the faith. It says, Jeepers, what on earth is going on? And then I started to feel a victim. But then I thought, wait a second. <laughs> There's probably a lot of people that I have caused to stumble and to weep and to be angry because of my own failures and my own sins. Because many times we, the disciples of Jesus, 
are the impediment to those who want to see Jesus. Keep an eye on that. But then comes the strange answer that illustrates the gospel. And this is when the passage gets really fun. In verse 24, Jesus answers, I have not been sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then she came and prostrated herself, knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered her, saying, It's not good to take the bread of the children and toss it to the little dogs. This is what I imagine happened. It's not in the text, but but if we put the two passages together and try to run it as a movie, they're in the house, the woman comes, he doesn't pay attention to her. Okay, guys, it's time to leave. They leave, the woman keeps running and talking to them and shouting behind them, and they keep walking, ignoring them. Disciples stop him, Lord, please, please, Lord, let's do something about it. And the Lord answers the disciples, Guys, no, because my ministry first is to the house of Israel. And he was telling the truth. Jesus was sent first to Israel. That's what John 1.12 says. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. That's the whole point of the parable of the vineyard. He gave the vineyard to some administrators. They were unfaithful to it. He will throw them out and bring new administrators to the vineyard. And the vineyard is God's kingdom. And the first administrators were the Israelites. And the last administrators were the Gentiles to whom God opened the kingdom. Very obvious that Jesus is telling the truth. And he's explaining that to the disciples. And you know what I think happened? And this is my speculation. That the woman came and snuck up. He's talking to them. She says, oh, they stopped. Vroom! And she ran and got into his feet. Lord, help me. It's like, man. I mean, if she had a husband, poor guy. But she was insisting. And when she prostrated and knelt before Jesus, Mark changes the word. From help me, Mark goes to Sucker me. Please. I'm desperate. Strong, the lexicographer says that the verb Mark uses was used in classical Greek to express a deep prayer. A deep, needy request. Help me. Ayúdame. Jesus' answer makes things more complicated because Jesus' answer seems harsh. Now he tells the woman it is not right to take the children's food and toss it to the dogs. Whoa. You know that Jews treated Gentiles as dogs. That's what they thought. And dogs are not like, like the dogs we have now, our pets. We love them, right? It's not Simba. No, no, it's, it's one of those street dogs that you don't want because they have all kinds of ticks and, and, and rashes and things and you don't even want them close to you. That's how a Jew view a Gentile. And Jesus tells her, no, I was sent to Israel and it is not right to take the children's food and toss it to the dogs. <laughs> and the woman... <laughs> Of course, let me make a point here. Jesus is not being cruel. Jesus is making an illustration. 
He's not telling her, you're a dog. Of course not. He's just using a point that she would get. You don't take your, your children's food and, and let the dogs eat first than your children. No, dogs eat the leftovers. I mean, now I know modern dogs in the U.S., they eat their light, little bolitas and all of that, and that's beautiful. But, but normally, no. You know, you, you, they would eat the leftovers. The woman says, oh, yes, it is right, Lord. <laughs> it's just, what? <laughs> yes, you can do that. Because even the little dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from their master's table. It was like, what? Yeah, Jesus is saying something which is theologically and morally correct. I love Simba, but Simba is not in my will and state. My children are. I'm not going to take things from my children to give them to Simba, my dog, whom I love. But the woman says, yes, but it doesn't matter. Simba still enjoys the benefits of you being his master. And that's pretty much what she's telling Jesus. Yes, dogs can eat from their master's table. And she was a negotiator. She didn't contradict Jesus. She simply says, okay, let's take your argument and run with it. I'm the dog. Throw me a crumb. My daughter needs help. Amazing. She argued her request with Jesus' own words. I'm going to say this modestly in fear because I know Jesus is God. But allow me to say it for the sake of illustration. She cornered Jesus. Literally. She says, okay. Then throw me the crumbs. Do we know how to argue with God, with God's word? It's very, very fitting when we're praying to have Bible verses to throw at God. God, but you have said... That if I seek your kingdom and your glory and your righteousness first, you promised that all things will be taken care of in my life. So I need a job, or I need this, or I need that. And you know that your kingdom is first in my life. Can we pray to God that way? Lord, you have promised that no good thing will lack those who fear you. And I fear you. I'm not asking for a Lexus. I'm asking for a car. Even if it's a Volkswagen 1969. By the way, that was my first car. (laughs) All I'm asking is for transportation. And you said that those who fear you will lack nothing. Do we know how to pray that way? This woman did. And the answer she gave Jesus moved him. Because Jesus said, oh woman, great is your face. I imagine, and again I'm imagining, that the Lord must have laughed. (laughs) Okay, you got it. Go, your daughter is healed from her affliction. And that is the face that impressed God. He was moved 
by this woman's brokenness, persistence, and humility. And my conclusion is that that's the gospel illustrated. That's exactly what took place. Jesus told a woman who was a foreigner living in Greek land in the Middle East, great is your faith. He had just come from Israel who had the Bible, had the Torah, had the Ketuvim, the Navim, all the writings, all the Psalms, had the theology, had the covenants, had the priests, had the temple. And they were hardened of heart. And these heathen, unknowing, foreigner, pagan, he says, great is your faith. Because faith appears where we least expect it. Jesus' response exalted the woman who humbled herself. In fact, the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The only way to draw God's attention is with a broken heart. The psalmist says that. The contrite spirit and the broken heart you will not despise. And this woman stopped Jesus and got what she wanted. Because faith rises in the places we least expected. Do you notice how she had been calling Jesus persistently? Lord. Kurie. Lord. Not prophet. Not rabbi. Not rabboni. Lord. You are the Lord. You are Adonai. Because the Jews would not say Yahweh. They would say Adonai. Instead of God. Not to take God's name in vain. And she is calling Jesus. What a Jew would call Yahweh. Lord. And she's saying. Son of David. You are the one of the covenant. You are the king eternal. Promised to David. And of whom Daniel and the prophets spoke. And in whom Israel. Those neighbors from where you come from. Are waiting as their redeemer and conqueror. And last priest and prophet. You are the son of David. You are the child of the covenant. You are the one in whom every promise of God is encompassed. You are the one who saves. You are the son of David. And then she prostrated herself and said, have mercy on me. I'm not coming at you on my merits. I'm not coming to you because I have been a good mother to that child. I'm not coming to you because I'm a good woman. I'm not coming to you because I am this good person, this good neighbor. Go ask around who am I and they'll give you a good report about me. No, I'm coming to you pleading for something I do not deserve and would never earn. Mercy, 
Please have mercy on me. And that's the gospel. And to that woman, to a foreign Canaanite who had not been trained in scripture, Jesus said, Oh woman, great is your faith. And that's the way it rolls. Or do you think that the truth and the saved ones are those bloggers that spend their day fighting over the little dots of theology? Or do you think that the faith is just knowing and having the right doctrine or attending the right church or listening to the right preachers? What impresses God? Psalm 147 says, God is not impressed by the legs of the warrior. He's not impressed by the strength of the horses when they go to battle. The Lord delights, says the psalmist, in those who fear him, in those who put their hope in his unfailing love. God is not impressed by our works or by our words. God is not impressed by our salaries, our homes, our moral life, our intelligence, our accolades, our achievements. None of that impresses God. Isaiah 62 describes what impresses God. Thus says the high and lofty one, the one who runs over the clouds of the sky, To this one I will look, to him or to her, who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my work. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. Jesus didn't come for the churchgoers. Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came for the broken. Jesus came for those who know they don't have anything to stand before him. People ask, ask me, when did you come to the Lord? Yeah, on September 28, 1980. No, this morning. Because whenever I open my mouth and I have to speak to God, I start by, Son of David, have mercy on me. Or do you think God is impressed with your perseverance of 42 years in the faith, or 50, or 20, or 10? No. God is impressed by the broken. And this passage reveals the heart of Jesus to those who are needy. He will not despise the contrite heart. He will not despise the broken heart. If you feel unworthy, you're exactly where you need to be to be reached by the mercy and the grace of the friend of sinners. Go to him. Father, bless your word and use it according to your purposes. Show yourself mighty, show yourself righteous, show yourself saving, show yourself kind and merciful to those who need you. In Jesus' name, amen.